Hello there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I'm your host, Florence Adu, and I'm coming to you from Ghana. I'm back after the summer in the U.S. I'm back to my other native, and it's hot, and it's humid, and it's lovely, and here we are. My guest is halfway across the world on another continent. He is currently a visiting professor at the University ICESI, Centro de Estudios Afrodiasporos. I hope I said that right. (laughs) And that is in Cali, Colombia. He received his doctorate from the University of California, Los Angeles, that's UCLA, and is the author of Fighting for Honor, the History of African Martial Art Traditions in the Atlantic World. He specializes in the historical ethnography of pre-colonial Africa and the African diaspora with a focus on martial arts, physical culture, religion, sport, historical linguistics, and military history. Yay, we're in for a great conversation. His current research focuses on the social history of the machete and Afro-Colombian machete fighting from 1848 to 1960 and 20th century prison boxing. Dr. TJ Desh Obi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be on. Thanks for having yay. me. Yay, yay, yay. So let's jump right in. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Okay. I'm originally from West Africa, Nigeria, Liberia, but I grew up in the Midwest in the United States, but I've moved around so much. So right now my local is in Kindil, Colombia. Kindil. Yes. Okay. And where is that? Like people know Colombia, they know Cartagena, they know Medellin. Where is Kindil? So Quindío is, it's about two hours north of Cali, Colombia. Okay. So the university that I was based at is in Cali, but I am wanted to move out to more rural areas. So closer to Cali, just north of Cali. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm at the moment, I am actually local in Vilcabamba, Ecuador, in a nature, oh. Remy Wilco nature reserve but I will be traveling back to Kindio in about a week. Okay. So we know where you're from. We know where you're local. What is your craft? My craft is martial arts. So yeah, my focus is martial arts has been my passion and I've just kind of followed my passion for most of my whole life. I started martial arts when I was eight years old uh-huh. and um, yeah, so martial arts is definitely my craft. And Secondarily, or because of martial arts, ethnography, historical ethnography is my mm-hmm. professional craft. That's what I get paid mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. Um, right, 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 right. We all have to have that one, right? <laughs> okay, so you said you started martial arts at the age of eight, and you grew up in the Midwest. So tell us more about kind of how that came to be. Was it just your parents wanted to put you in something? Or you watched a lot of you know, kung fu movies. How did martial arts become your passion? Yeah, I guess it, I'm not, you know, I was so young at the time. I'm not sure the whole backstory of how I got put into martial arts. But I was always interested in martial arts. And I think it's just my father had been involved in, in martial arts, boxing and wrestling and things. So I guess it's just in my blood. Mm-hmm. And So I started out in Asian martial arts, studying Asian martial arts, but kind of what set my path was I started out doing Filipino stick fighting and some of the more common Kung Fu and Taekwondo and some of the more common household name martial arts. But my path really took 
you know, my life took its path starting in about junior high school because I was, I had always been interested in the martial arts of Africa. So being in the diaspora. And I, I remember being in junior high school and talking to people about African martial arts and people looking at me like I was crazy. They're just imagining like Africans in kimonos or something. African martial arts, what are you talking about? But I would considered the traditional wrestling that my father did a martial art because I felt what wrestlers could do. And I'd been stopped by wrestlers when I was studying. So I considered a martial art and I was trying to explain to people, no, you know, Africans have martial arts too. And so it's something that started actually really young in my life. And so while I, I loved Asian martial arts, but always did that trying to translate martial arts into the African diaspora context mm-hmm. was something that really started really young for me. And so I remember in high school, or, so I was a nerd. Mm-hmm. And so my two favorite places were the martial arts school, well, three, the martial arts school, the playground, and the library. So I loved to go to the library and basically explore the world through books. So I remember writing papers already in high school, trying to write about African martial arts. And so when I was blessed to go to college, that was kind of my focus. And I wrote many papers in college about African, African diaspora martial arts. And what did you major in? I majored in the comparative study of religion with a minor in psychology. Interesting. Yeah, my parents were not happy. Um, right, especially not African parents. <laughs> yeah, so, but, yeah, but eventually my parents came around. They knew this was my passion. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, that's, but, you know, my experience in the comparative study of religion was really trying to get at the heart of, you know, spiritual dimensions of Afri- African. Exactly. African that's Muslim. what I was wondering. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I had my two thesis advisors. One of them was a mambo. She was, uh, that's a, a female priestess in Haitian Vodun, for those who aren't familiar with the term. That's a mambo. That's what a mambo is, the term mambo. So she was coming from that perspective. So she had a lot of an angle. And then, then my other thesis advisor was Professor Robert Ferris Thompson, who is the original African diaspora art scholar. He's overlooked in academic circles, but I think a lot of the modern academic study of African diaspora studies owe so much to this man. Really amazing man. And he's actually the one who came up with the term Black Atlantic, although people give credit to other folks. But anyway, he was my advisor. He is an art historian who specializes in African and African diaspora art forms. And he's really the pioneer scholar of African diaspora martial arts. So I was really blessed to work with these two people. Mm-hmm. And I started as an undergraduate in college. I got some grants to do research for my undergraduate thesis. I traveled to Brazil. I traveled back to Nigeria. And I uh, was kind of looking at the history of martial arts in Nigeria, in Brazil with capoeira. And that's kind of where how my journey started. And from there, I haven't stopped. I've traveled all over Africa and a lot of the diaspora and... Mm-hmm. Um, just looking at these art forms that uh, most people don't even necessarily recognize as something significant, but I think it's an important part of you know, African, African diaspora history and culture that gets overlooked. Because in the West, we tend, the, when, when you hear the word martial art, you tend to have image right away of Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan or 
Shaolin monks, or it's always Asia, Asia, but Africans had their own martial art traditions. And as a historian, I can say that the African martial arts are actually even older than mm-hmm. the Asian martial arts. There's uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was this mystique that was developed around Asian martial arts, like these were these ancient traditions. But most of the martial arts that people are familiar with, Taekwondo and Karate, these are all 19th and 20th century inventions. These are not right. ancient arts at all. Right. But it has that mystique and people think about it that way. But really, the many of the African martial arts that I've studied and researched are actually much, much older. So, mm-hmm. What is the oldest of the African martial arts that you've come across? It's really impossible to say mm. because in the African case, it's going back so far. And the question is, how are you defining martial arts? And what's your evidence? The oldest documentation, kind of material documentation we have of martial arts is the Egyptian tomb of Beni Hassan in Egypt. Mm. So in this tomb, there are these elaborate illustrations of various Egyptian martial arts, stick fighting, wrestling, this wide variety, showing different techniques and competitions. So that's our oldest documentary evidence of martial arts pretty much anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's hard when you start getting back that far to put dates on yeah. Yeah. traditions. But of the obviously wrestling, I mean, who knows? It's so universal and it's so ancient, but it's just when can you start documenting? But the mm-hmm. earliest would be that Egyptian tomb illustration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The art that I probably spent the most time in during my graduate studies is a martial art called Ngolo. And I was able to trace that art emerged somewhere before the 12th century, somewhere between the 9th and the 12th century. So significantly older than the kind of judo, karate, taekwondo, and all these like, you know, by centuries older. Right. And that I'm able to date because of, not from written records, but through historical linguistics. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is a, Historical linguistics is a really fascinating methodology that is kind of has really been really exploded by scholars of African history because for many, well, there's two, you know, for many places in Africa, we just don't have ancient historical writings. So how do we know about the history of Africans before we have written records? Now, first of all, one myth we have to like kind of eliminate is that Africans didn't have writing systems. So there were plenty of writing systems. So like in southeastern Nigeria and Cameroon, we have the Ancibidi script. We have the Vi script in West Central Africa. We have other ideographic writing systems. And archaeologists have kind of hypothesize a connection between these writing systems, Egyptian writing systems, with writings that has been found in the Sahara Desert. Mm. So there was a time called the, pardon the term, Holocene Climactic Optimum. So basically, if we go back from, say, 9000 BC to 2500 BC, we had this time when Africa became, the rainfall increased, the Lake Chad became this huge, we call it Megachad, archaeologists refer to it as Megachad, there were lakes and rivers in what is today the Sahara Desert. So all of that thing that we people think, oh, it's the desert, it's always been the desert. Well, no, actually, it used to be inhabited. And archaeologists have found 
pictographs on caves in this area and have hypothesized that there's very ancient writing system that kind of was the ancestor of a lot of these other uh, writing systems. But that's not my focus. Sorry. So I just wanted to spell that myth. Africans mm-hmm. had writing for millennia. Let's just say that. Right. Okay. Right. Now, but for many areas, we don't have the type of writings or the historical old enough writings to talk about the history of Africa in various places. Mm-hmm. And so one of the techniques that's really been pioneered well and has really produced a lot of great fruit is called, his, we refer to it as historical linguistics. Some people refer to it as comparative linguistics. And so how this works is that linguists have come up with what's referred to as a Swadesh list. It's a list of words that are the least likely to change over time, the least likely that you would borrow someone else's word. So things like the word for nose or something, you're not going to usually borrow someone else's word for these type of terms. And so we collect these word samples from a number of related African languages. And then using this, we can kind of determine, basically we create a statigraphy. So something like a family tree, right? Going back in time to see how related, how long ago did these different languages separate from each other. And then we can figure out in these different languages, we can look at individual words in any subject area that we want. And then we can look at these words and say, is this word in modern day Oshikwanyama, for example, is this word inherited from a mother language? Is it borrowed from another uh, neighboring language? Or was it invention based on a previous term? And if it was inherited from a mother language, we can kind of put it up one level on the family tree to the mother language. So just like Latin gave birth to Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, right? These languages, when words come to these languages, they come to them in set patterns. And if the words are following these patterns, we know that that word came from this mother language. And so we can build a vocabulary of words in this proto-languages that are no longer spent, but the mother languages of the living languages in the area. And you can keep going back and back. And you can see how far you can push individual words back on that family tree. And that's boring and tedious and methodical. But once you have the system set up, then you can trace the words. This word came up in this time period. It spread from this language family to that language family. And words are artifacts, right? So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we don't have a word for something that doesn't exist. We can't have the word for iron if we don't have iron in our social context, right? Mm -hmm. So... By tracing the history of words and dating the history of words, we can trace the history of ideas, practices, techniques, beliefs, etc. So using these techniques, we can go back in time. We can roughly put a rough chronology on when these words emerged, when they were invented from earlier things. Where they... So you can do a history of many different things just using words. So there are two pioneering scholars in this field. One was Jan Van Sina and the other is Christopher Eret. And they have been able to really write dynamic and vibrant histories of Africa based only on or primarily on this language evidence and then kind of marrying this language evidence with archaeology in order to get more specific dating but we, it gives us general time periods, you know. Okay. So that's ultimately how we understand martial arts being this ancient 
practice yeah. that was across. And it's probably not just central to the Northern African, Egyptian, the Nile Basin, but probably it spread along the Nile like most civilization. Exactly. Well, I disagree with the concept that culture kind of came in through Egypt and then spread to the rest of Africa. That is a kind of a colonial legacy, uh, you know, legacy colonial mindset. So what we know now between both ethnographic research, linguistic research and archaeology was that Egypt was the recipient of ancient African traditions, not the mother of. Mm, so, so for mm-hmm, example, mm-hmm. Just, just to give you an example, because I could go for hours on this stuff, but mm-hmm. um, like ironwork, okay? So scholars always assume that, oh yeah, well, iron must have come from the Middle East and then spread through Egypt. We know that's not true now, even though it's not, you know, only scholars of African history know this stuff. But what happened is that we know that African, number one, we know that Africans had different techniques of crafting a smelting iron. And we know archaeologically that we can find iron in Central Africa half a millennium before we have any evidence for it in Egypt. So we know it didn't come through Egypt. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. because the technique from ethnographic research, because the technique is significantly different, not only is African ironworking in the central part of Africa older than in Egypt, we also know that Africans were producing carbon steel much earlier than in the rest of the world. So by 1000 BC, Africans were smelting carbon steel because of a technique called preheated drafts. So they heated the air before the air went into the furnace. This caused for much higher furnaces than in the Middle East or Europe. And the European patent for preheated drafts wasn't issued until 1823. So millennium before the Europeans came up with the patent for this, Africans were producing carbon steel. So mm-hmm. again, sorry, not to be... No, that's a great uh, example. Just, as a scholar of Africa, we have to constantly work at kind of undoing this colonial mindset that we all suffer with. Right. And establishing the narrative, which is what I enjoy about this work and about doing this program is that I get to speak with people who are at the foundation of changing the narrative about our global citizenship and what's going on around the world. So let me take a pivot and ask you, because you said you're in the forest in Ecuador and it looks so peaceful there. Yes. So tell us, tell us, how did you come to be living and working and playing where you currently live and where you currently are? How did you find your way to Colombia? Yeah, so it was a a circuitous journey. I was researching African-derived martial arts in Haiti, and I was studying a Haitian martial art called Tire Machete, which is a stick and machete fighting art that was used during the Haitian Revolution and still widely practiced in a few areas of Haiti. And I was training with the master, and the master kind of mentioned casually that, yeah, you can also find some great masters in Colombia. And I'm like, what? Okay, so because I was thinking about this as a local Haitian thing. And then, so I said, well, I got to go to Colombia and find out about this. And so, goodness, more than 15 years ago, I first traveled to Colombia and found some masters of this and started studying it. And I immediately fell in love with the Colombian style of machete fighting. It was going to be much easier for me to work. So in Haiti, I had spent maybe three field trips in Haiti. 
But it came to the point where the master in Haiti said, okay, if you want to progress any further, we are going to have to initiate you into the night societies in translation, Bizango, basically, if you've heard the term, which I, I'm Christian by background. So I was like, yeah, I'm not ready to do that. So it made sense. So well, and this Colombian thing, I just kind of found this Colombian thing. So that was one side of it. And the other side of it was that in Colombia, there was this fascinating tradition that the martial art masters passed down these little handwritten notebooks called Cartillas de Malicia. And these cartillas contain historical information because they often say they have the lineage histories, what year the cartilla was made, what year the master or what year the art, this particular style started. And so it, as a historical ethnographer, I was like, wow, this is a gold mine. Because first of all, no scholars have ever, didn't even know this. You wouldn't know this exists because masters of this art are very secretive about this. They will deny it even to their students. They, I mean, they're very hush-hush. It's only when you have a certain level of training that they will open up to you about the cartillas and let you look at them and things like that. Usually only when you become a graduate of the academy, uh, traditionally. So this was really calling me, and the art is really beautiful, and the educational system is much more organized than it was in Haiti. So it just seemed to me like a natural time to transition um, mm. from Haiti to Colombia. Mm -hmm. The other thing that fascinated me about the Colombian system is because of this organized pedagogy, the way that they taught this martial art, it would allow me to utilize this linguistic methodology that we talked about before. But instead of tracing words, I could trace movements and educational movement patterns. And so I started on this path of trying to document and save the Afro-Colombian martial art. Now, a lot of the martial arts that I've studied, I'd say the vast majority of them are endangered arts, right? There's some arts in Africa, like Senegalese wrestling and Hausa boxing. They're not going anywhere. They're big money. They're whatever, they're mainstream. But the vast majority of arts, are dying out. People are not interested. Local people don't always see the value in them. And so they're dying out. And that was definitely the case with the Afro-Colombian martial arts. And so there were still, basically, so what happened is that in the 1950s, there was a civil uprising, I don't know exactly what to call it, where different political factions kind of went to war. But instead of meeting in armies, it kind of came down to the village level where you had basically like local feuding. It was terrible. It was referred to as la violencia, the violence, because it was so violent. People were massacred. It was horrible. Yeah, it was, it was really ugly period in Colombian history. And as a result of that, in some places, the authorities started to crack down on the academies, the schools that taught these martial arts, because people would be like, okay, you killed my uncle. So I would go to one of these academies, learn the martial arts so I could go and get revenge on you. And then one of your relatives would go find another master of a different style to beat my... It was like a, out of the Hatfields and the McCoys meet uh, Chinese Kung Fu movies. Yeah, uh, <laughs> sounds like... <laughs> in, 
in the Afro-Colombian martial arts, we can refer to them kind of collectively, the style of martial arts as grima, but there are multiple styles, like in Kung Fu movies. Mm-hmm. And so certain styles have different characteristics that give them strengths against one style, but, mm. you know, disadvantages against another style. So people literally were like jostling these different styles. It there became kind of like an economy of combat where, you know, okay, you're learning that style, so I'm going to learn something else to defeat you. And it's just, just out like out of Kung Fu movies. So, but the problem was that that meant that all of the living masters who were graduates of the academies were now in their 70s, 80s, and 90s and above. And there were no younger masters to carry on the legacy. So in terms of the more, the older styles of Grima, masters, nobody knew they were masters. They, you know, they just kind of kept hush and went on with their lives and academies never reopened. And so kind of like as a result of La Violencia, there were only two types of Grima academies that kind of remained active. One of them kind of took a sportive turn. So instead of using machetes, they based on stick fighting and it became sportive. They came up with rules like, let's make this a sport. So, you know, no one's, we're not rustling anybody's feathers. No one's going to come learn this to hurt another people because we're just, it's a sport now. And so they changed the art, the way the art was played. And so there was a new branch of styles that kind of went that sportive way. And then there was another branch of Grima academies that kind of kept Grima alive, but only through performance. So they didn't actually fight anymore, but they kept mm-hmm. alive educational choreographies, put them on stage, put them to music, used them, you know, kind of theatrically on stage and became performance groups. Mm. Those are the only two, and both of those in a very localized area and the other in a very localized area. For the rest of Colombia, Grima was basically a dying art. And so in order to find masters, I would have to go village by village and eventually came to the point where I could look at how someone walked and have a sense like, yeah, that guy's knows something and try and approach them in this really slow process because you have to build up trust. Mm-hmm. So to give you an example, one of my current masters, Mr. Mario, when I first went to his house and to talk to him, he said, no, who told you I know about that? You're crazy. I don't know anything about that. I've never heard of that. You're mistaken. I went back with people, the person who told me that he knew, and he was like, oh, yeah, I may have played once or twice, but that was, I was just instinctive. I was just playing around. I don't, I wasn't. So I had to start visiting his house, befriending his children and his wife and bringing gifts. Two years later, he opens up. Yeah, okay, I'm a master. Two years. Um, Yeah, two years later. Then, and he said, okay, I'm a master of these three arts, one of which I, there, I was interested in all of them, but one of them was especially. But he said, well, I can't talk to you about that art until you first master this art. So he oh, kind of put me through the So it was two years till he opened up. Then he started training me, but he wouldn't train me in the art that I was really wanted to interview him about. And he wouldn't even talk about it until I had mastered the first art because he wanted me to learn in the order he learned. So there I was. So I would be traveling to his house. <laughs> he closed the door behind closed doors in his backyard, start swinging yeah. machetes at me. And, you know, and I'm almost done with that first art, but it, it's just slow. And that's, it's taken me quite some time to get to where I'm at with him. And with almost all the masters, not all of them, there's, there have been in these two areas that I mentioned, one, the sportive, the community where there was a sportive version that emerged and the other where the performative, those two groups that were open quickly, but for the rest, it's really been 
research at the speed of trust, which in a place mm-hmm. like Colombia is slow. So mm-hmm. um, it's been a slow journey, but I'm, I don't regret it at all. It's really finally coming together. Mm-hmm. I've worked out the history of when different styles emerged, what was the, and trying to place them in the context of black people in Colombia at that time. And so I, it's finally coming together as a history, but woo, it's been a slow sure. going. So you teach at the same time as you're researching. And yes. so would you consider yourself a master yet of any specific martial art? And are you teaching yes. more the academic side? Or are you teaching also on the, the martial arts side? I am not teaching on the martial arts side at the moment. I had mm-hmm. some students for a while, but I graduated from a number of styles and I got a mastership level in one of the styles. But right now I'm primarily, my money comes from being a university professor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason why the research has been slow because I've been coming during my summers to Columbia for a long time. And then about three years ago, I kind of became based here in Columbia. First, I got in a Fulbright scholarship to conduct my research. And then I got this position at the Center for Afro-Diasporan Studies in Cali. Mm-hmm. And then I got a smaller grant, and then the pandemic hit. Mm. So I have been based in Colombia now for some time, and I'm planning to stay for some time. So for now, I am teaching all my courses online. Mm-hmm. And this has been the silver lining. Like everybody, the whole pandemic has been awful. I got sick. I've lost people. So it's been horrible. So I'm not making light of it, it's really been a horrible thing. But at the same time, you also got to look for the silver linings to keep your sanity. And this has been one of the silver linings is that I can be traveling mm-hmm. during this time. And hopefully I will continue to be teaching online for some time. Yeah, I was planning to get back to West Africa and do some more work on the African side, which is kind of the last component for me. I had gotten a grant to visit four places in West Africa to do some research on the African side of where some of these traditions are coming from and see how much of the African legacy is still visible in the mm. traditional mm-hmm, mm-hmm, art. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but clearly the foundational styles of Grima are all based on African martial art traditions. Okay. Okay. So I want to put a pin in that because I want to get to your book. Before that, I want to ask you my local speak question, which is, What do you hear? We want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as local speak. Hmm. So there's a phrase, kind of a phrase that resonates is arrieros somos y en el camino nos encontramos. Yeah, let's go with that one. Okay. So basically it's just saying that arrieros, saying we are arrieros and arrieros, these were the people who took goods from one place to another, usually by mule. So in the colonial context in Colombia, there were two means of transport. The first was the bogas, which were African boatmen who kind of using traditions, canoe building and sailing traditions from West Africa became initially these in the colonial period, they were enslaved, but they were boatmen like you would have seen in the Niger Delta or So they were in charge of transport via the major rivers. And then once goods or people arrived at the point along the rivers, then they would be, goods would be carried by arrieros across land. 
And so this saying is kind of saying, basically, we're all journeyers and we cross each other on the path of life, basically. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. that, that resonates with me because I am, you know, what the Yoruba call Amonozozo, a wandering child, because I, I mm-hmm. just go where where my passion takes me. And that's wherever I am, that's where I'm at. So that expression kind of resonates with my life experience, just having moved around so much, but just keeping the long-term journey in mind. And Nice. I like that. Yeah. Going where so you're say at. it again. Arie, 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 arie somos y en el camino nos encontramos. Arieros somos y el camino nos encontramos. Nos encontramos. Nos encontramos. Okay. My Spanish is not so great, but I'm pretty good at putting on accents. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for part one of my conversation with TJ Desh Obi. Be sure to join us next time when TJ shares more about his writing and the research that goes into creating new narratives around African history. As always, you can catch us with a new episode each and every Tuesday at www.localcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to share, like, subscribe, write us a review, particularly on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the podcast and recommend a guest if you so like. Again, my name is Florence Adu, and until next time, bye for now.